verses 4 to 15. There are parallel passages to this in in Mark and Matthew as well. Um, Luke 8, 4 through 15. Let me remind you that we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Luke 8 at verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches And pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for what is in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade. This word, however, will not fade, it will abide forever. And forever. I'm sure you've noticed that there are these tensions in the scriptures. I I suppose the most famous one is divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but there are others. Jesus was fully God and fully man. We don't make, you can't get your head around that completely. And here's another one. In the scriptures, sometimes we're told that certain people, uh, Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. So he's telling them their names are written in the book of life and, and they can be sure they'll be saved. And then at other times he says, and the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And it sounds like it's not so certain. Well, this passage before us is kind of the second sort. 
uh, the parable we call of the sower, better said, I think, the parable of the four soils. It's not so much about the sower as the soils, right? And the four responses that come to the word of God. So we're going to have a look at it in a minute, but let me first ask the question, why did Jesus teach this at this point in his ministry? And I think there's one big reason. It's fairly clear. He did things like this from time to time. If you look at verse 4, it says, When a great cloud crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him. He's got an overheated popularity going here. Uh, there's, there's an enormous response to his ministry. And I think he wants to separate a little bit, you might say, the sheep from the goats. But it's also his love for the masses. His love not for their approval, but that they would be saved. He wants them to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. How do you respond to Jesus' message? The word that's sown, that Pastor Joling gives you week after week. How do you hear it? How do I hear it? Not how do we as a group hear it. Yes, we know that the URC has standards about that. But how do I as an individual respond to the word? And this parable will help us to see that, I think. So, let me, have a, let me mention a few preliminaries, and then I want to look at the, the four soils. It's pretty easy to see that the, the seed is the Word of God. It's God's revelation to His world. What's in that revelation? Well, primarily, fundamentally, first of all, God is revealing Himself. And He's revealing His kingdom in verse 1 of this chapter. Bringing the good news of the kingdom. That, that Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom. Mark 1 verse 4. The kingdom of God had come upon them. He's bringing, proclaiming himself and his kingdom and revealing his gospel and his Christ. And his redemption. And his coming return and all of those things. It's, it's the, the word of God in its entirety. Which of course is focused fundamentally about Jesus Christ. And all four soils have this same word preached to them. That is, the same seed falls on each soil type. So these are people that have heard the word of God. These are people like you and me, people who've come to church and come to Sunday school and been in Bible studies. These are people that the word has come to, not those that are outside and never heard the word, but people like you and me. Who sows the seed? Well, Jesus did. The apostles did. His followers do. That is, the church today sows the seed. It talks about fruit in verse 15 and implies uh, concern about fruit all along. What's he talking about here? Well, I think he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit in lives and Christian community. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. But I think he's also talking about evangelistic fruit. In John 15, it talks about um, uh, vines being pruned so that they can bear more fruit. And so the issue 
The seed is sown on various soils, and various soils respond to the seed in various ways. So the the issue is our response to the word of God when it is presented to us. And the cost involved in consistently hearing and doing what the word of God tells us. And so it's about our hearts, is it not? The four soils are really four hearts. In verse 15, it talks about um, a good and honest heart. You see, the difference in the four soils is the heart upon which the seed falls. So let's look at them one at a time, okay? And the first one is the hard soil, the compressed soil, which I would take to be something like a, a hard heart. The soil is hard and packed. I was riding down this morning and looked off to the side of the road one time and there was irrigation equipment out there, you know, the kind that rolls. And where the wheels roll, there's nothing growing because it's packed soil, like he's talking about here in the first uh, uh, soil type. Uh, like you walk out through a field, there's a, in, in a large, large field, you know this better than I, some of you, there'll be a path that the tractor takes and nothing grows there. And sometimes there are walking paths and nothing grows there. And the seed falls on this hard surface. And sometimes in verse 5, trampled underfoot and devoured by birds. And this, this heart, this soil type is hard. It's crusty. It's impenetrable. When the seed is sown, when the word goes out to a person of this heart type, it's like water off of a proverbial duck's back. Indifferent. Uninterested. Is there someone here today like that? You're here because you're brought by a parent, but you're really uninterested? or a spouse, and you're really uninterested, that, that it comes, the word of God goes off of you like waters off of a duck's back? It says in verse 12, it says in verse 12 that Satan's involved here. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Who is this? Well, it's those that are physically asleep in church, but not only them. I had a man in the church in Alabama. He was very sly. He could sleep and nobody knew it. You know what I mean? Most churches have that, sad to say. But there are those whose bodies are awake, but whose souls are asleep. That's really dangerous. Their bodies are awake, but their souls are asleep. And the word of God does not penetrate. It does not implant. It does not impact the life upon which the seed is sown. And the outcome is no faith, no salvation. Look at verse 12, no fruit. What can we learn from this? And this is something everybody should learn, not just those that are of this soil type. Realize that Satan, and remember Satan's mentioned in verse 12, is taking the word away. Satan always opposes the word of God when it's taught because the word of God is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1, 16 and 17. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because why? It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Well, the devil doesn't want that out there. The devil doesn't want that in a mind and heart. The devil doesn't want that in a transformative place in a person's life. And so he takes the word away. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. Has God said this? No. God doesn't want you to have a full, rich, abundant life. He does it today in public worship, in private worship, in family worship. The devil comes and plucks the word away. And so what I'm saying is spiritual warfare is always going on when the word of God is read and proclaimed. Spiritual warfare is going on right here, right now. You say, I, I don't think of that at Emmanuel's Reformed Church. This is a safe environment. Well, it is in some ways, but that door won't keep the devil out. And the devil doesn't want you to hear and respond to the word of God. And so the devil is always present when the word of God is read and proclaimed. We must, according to 1 Peter 5, verse 9, resist him firm in the faith. I think that's the first thing we learn from that. Also from this soil, we must learn to do what Jeremiah and Hosea tell us. We must plow up the fallow ground in our hearts. In uh, Jeremiah, it says, break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. What Jeremiah is saying that is that in the, the, the Israel of that day, some of them had hearts that were like fallow ground. Now, fallow ground is ground that's left untilled, unsown, after plowing, uncultivated, and in time it becomes crusty, and if you put a seed on it, it doesn't penetrate. Friend, be honest with yourself today. Is there fallow ground in your heart? Is there fallow ground that you need to ask the Spirit of the living God to come and plow up for you? I can tell you the answer to that. The answer is yes. There's fallow ground in my heart. There's fallow ground in your heart. There's fallow ground in every elder and deacon's heart. And we need to ask the Spirit of the living God to fall afresh on us if we sung, to plow up the, the, the ground of our hearts that's crusty and hard and impenetrable so that we will be sensitive and soak in the word of the living God as Pastor Joling gives it to you week after week. These verses exhort us, it seems to me, to do this. Of course, you can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. But you can't just say, well, when the Holy Spirit moves me, when the Holy Spirit comes and plows up the fallow ground, there are things that I can do. I can prepare. I can go to sleep on time and get plenty of rest and be ready physically and mentally. I can pray before I come to worship. I can pray for Pastor Joling. I can pray that God will make me receptive. I can pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. I can humble myself and admit my need. And confess that, Lord, so many times your, water has gone, your, your word has gone off me like water off a duck's back. 
You can pay attention when you come. You can listen. Because as James says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. You see, if the word is not implanted, there will be no fruit. And that's, I think, the warning from the first soil. The second soil is the rocky, shallow soil and heart. It's a rocky soil, a thin layer of soil over a rock substrate, I suppose. I think you find this in a lot of places, but if you're just a homeowner and not a farmer, you, you go near the foundation of your house or the foundation of your, the edge of your driveway and you start digging and, and often you find that the people that built the foundation or the driveway didn't clean up very well. And there's a lot of rock and debris under the soil. It's very thin often. The analysis that's given in the text is that initially the word is received with joy. That there is a good initial response and an apparent faith. But there is, to use the, the phrase from Matthew's account of the four soils, there's limited endurance. They believe for a while, but there's no root, no depth of root, no enduring faith. And so, in time of drought, in time of persecution, they fell away, testing and trial, tribulation and persecution because of the word, Matthew 13. And there's no fruit long term, just a plant that shot up and then withered away. Now trials, which are the problem here, trials, according to the scriptures, Trials have a positive place in the plan of God. Uh, Peter talks about the tested genuineness of your faith. The tested genuineness of your faith. James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what is the remedy here? What is the remedy to the type of, of parent faith, this, this initial rocky soil faith that grows up and then withers away in time of persecution? What, what is the remedy? Well, first of all, I would say to you and me that we must count the cost of following Jesus. Because Jesus said, if they persecute, persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So he warned them ahead of time, right? That they would be persecuted as his followers. So he got to count the cost. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus, to use an image another place, is he the pearl of great price for which a man went away and sold all that he had so he could come and buy that pearl? And it was worth everything he had? Do we see Jesus that way? Is, is the gospel of the kingdom the coming of Jesus Christ and living the life we could not live ourselves and dying the death that we deserve to die, is that gospel really the absolutely best news to us that we could imagine? Count the cost. And then, secondly, I would say look to Jesus for strength and encouragement. 
Persecution is the path of the disciple, but Jesus has promised to be with us on that path. Because persecution is a necessary part of spiritual formation, of of conforming us to the image of Christ. Because what was his image? An image of suffering before it was an image of glory. And I think we've got to realize that the security we seek is only in Jesus. I love that passage in John 10. Uh, They're in the Father's hands and nothing can take them out of the Father's hand. You see, the reason somebody would would fall away because of persecution, because of the word, is they're, they're worried about security. But there's no greater security than being in the hands of the Father. There's no greater security than walking with Jesus Christ. There's no greater security than being in the will of the living God. The third soil is the thorny ground soil. And I call this the, the distracted heart. Distracted heart. The description of this soil is that the thorns grow up along with the word and eventually choke it out. And so it becomes unfruitful. My experience with uh, blackberries in Oregon is that they're very plentiful and nothing else grows with them. (laughs) Uh, They just choke everything out, right? And that's what he's talking about here. The thorns grow up and choke the word. Now, the problem with this heart... Carefully look at the text. The the problem with this heart is that it is distracted by lesser things. Distracted by lesser things. And and we're in the area here of not good, bad, but better, best. And let me explain what I mean. A good, bad decision goes like this. So the workday is over. Should I go home to my wife and family or should I go to the local bar and drink for four hours before I go home drunk? To me, that's a pretty easy decision, right? It doesn't take you long to get the answer to that one. That's a good, bad decision. But the better, best decision might look like this. You know, if I just worked another hour, I could get so much done. But I told my family I'd be home But they'll understand, I'm torn. This is a very easy decision. This is not such an easy decision every day. That's the area we're in. We're in the area of not the good, bad, but the better, best. Because this heart, this mind, is divided. It's double-minded, to use Jesus' phrase from Matthew 6. It's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of life. Now, there are things in the world we've got to take care of, but not to the exclusion of hearing the word of God and bearing fruit from it. There, we legitimately pursue money well to meet the needs that we have, the legitimate needs that we have. And there are pleasures in this life that are fine to pursue. But none of those things to pursue as gods, as idols. When you think like Martha, you know the story of Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary is listening to the Lord's words seated at his feet. And Martha is in the kitchen. And Martha is in feverishly preparing the meal. And 
she comes to Jesus and says, in so many words, Lord, would you speak to my sister? She's left me to do all the serving, and I'm sick and tired of it. And Jesus said, Mary's chosen the good part. When when good things displace in our lives listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet, then the cares of this world are choking out the word of God. I've got a missionary friend that once used this phrase in describing this kind of problem. He said, the world we live in is very captivating, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, think in Oregon, we're not far from the mountains, we're not far from the coast. It's a captivating world, it's a beautiful world. My wife, my dear wife says, if this world is this beautiful and Jesus hasn't come back and made all things new, imagine what it will be like when he does. And I think that's true. It's a captivating world. Are you more captivated by the world or captivated by the word of the living God? Mentions the deceitfulness of riches. This this passage just says riches, but in Matthew it uses the phrase the deceitfulness of riches. Why are riches deceitful? Why are they deceitful? Well, what they promise, a full, rich, abundant, joyful life, a good life, as the culture says it, riches can't deliver. Riches only bring worry and concern. My favorite illustration of this is is the movie stars. They're rich and famous and a miserable group taken as a whole. I mean, if, if riches and fame and fortune would make you happy, they would be happy, but, but they're not. My mother used to say, son, money's hurt more people than it's helped. Are riches distracting you from the word of God? Is their role in your life one of deceit, promising you the good life, delivering worry? And then the pleasure of this life. This is the long-term, short-term problem. Often we think that certain things are essential in the short term and fail to factor in the long term. And very simply said... How will you wish you had lived when you stand before Jesus someday? How will you wish you had lived when you stand before Jesus someday? That's the way you should live today. The psalmist in Psalm 16 says, You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do we really believe that? That the pleasures at God's right hand are more, are they more enticing in my life? Are they more intriguing to my heart, more captivating to my soul than the pleasures of the world? These desires for other things are distractions. They're really based on the feeling that Jesus is not enough. No fruit, no grain. 
So how do we remedy, what's the remedy for this one? Well, I think we all need to deal with our idols as idols. We need to learn to delight ourselves in the Lord Jesus. Because all distraction is rooted in attraction. What do I mean by that? If you are distracted from Jesus, it's because you're attracted by something else. And that something else is so attractive to you that it has temporarily at least displaced your attraction for Jesus. And so what we need to do to overcome this problem is grow our attraction for Jesus Christ and view our distractions for what they are, which is idols. What do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? That may tell you what the idols in your life are. The fourth soil is the good soil, the good heart. It's called the good heart, good and honest heart. It holds fast to the word. It's devoted to Jesus and his word. It produces fruit, fruit with patient endurance. And so the lesson, of course, is that the condition of one's heart determines whether there is receptivity to the word and ultimately fruit bearing. Therefore, we must watch over our hearts with all diligence. We must plead with God for an open, teachable, tender heart. From our hearts flow the big issues of life. Many of you know what soil testing is. You know, you go out and you dig a sample of soil. Maybe it's in your yard. Maybe it's in your field on your farm. You take a sample and you maybe send it off to Oregon State for analysis because you want to find out what the pH is, what the minerals are and aren't in your soil, so that you'll know what to do, how to deal with the soil, how to fertilize and make a crop grow. Similarly, you can test the soil of your hearts. The way you do that is you just read the word, sit under the word preached, go to a Bible study where it's read and explained, and note the response Note your response over time. That's the soil test for your heart. That's the point of this parable. Four soils, four hearts, four responses, but only two outcomes. The first three soils are unfruitful. If I understand correctly, lead one to hell. And the last soil is fruitful and is the person prepared for eternal life. Jesus drew crowds. He spoke to the crowds because he was after followers, but not just any followers. He wanted faithful followers. And it's clear that he wants us in this last category, the fruitful category. And for that to happen, we must listen continually and pay attention and count the cost of persecution and endurance and count the cost of single-mindedness and pay it. And we must see and have a growing apprehension of and a desire for the beauty and value of Jesus Christ and the good news about him and the kingdom of God. And we must persevere with endurance. Jesus is calling for a lifetime response, friend, not a one-time response. Fruit takes time to grow. But we must play the long game. 
we must ask ourselves, where am I in the crowd? Where are my family, my friends? Because a little soil testing from time to time is a good idea. And that's what he's doing with this crowd of verse 4. He's doing a little soil testing with them and with us today. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. Our Father in God, help us to be honest with ourselves about the soil of our hearts. Help us to plow up the fallow ground. Help us to give up the lame distractions. Help us, O oh Lord, to be rooted and grounded and fruitful and love you as the pearl of great price. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.